we will use an election algorithm called fragment election which has a property called justified representation of stake what it does is that no matter how much value you come with you will always be chosen in a manner which maximizes the decentralization of the network What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. March is just around the corner, and I wanted to make sure to give you a quick reminder to not top tick your prices of your DAS London tickets. If you use codes 0x10 at checkout, you can lock in a 10% discount on your ticket. Don't miss out on your chance to get ahead of the curve. I'll see you in London. Before we get into today's episode, just a quick disclaimer. The views expressed on this podcast by either myself or any guests are their personal views and do not represent the views of any associated organization. Nothing in this episode should be construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. All right, let's jump into the episode. Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. We have a great episode lined up with Fabao co-founder Adam Vale, which is a robust base layer designed to meet the needs of next-generation trust-minimized applications and sovereign rollups. Today is Tuesday, February 13th. As a reminder, be sure to use code 0xresearch10 at app.blockworksresearch.com for 10% off your annual subscription. On to the interview with Fabao. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks a lot for having me, Ren and Sam. Yeah, could you start us off by outlining what exactly is Avail? So at Avail, we are trying to find the ways in which the rollups and the rollup-centric roadmap can play out. And one of the basic building blocks over which rollups strive is data availability. So our main core offering is the data availability focused blockchain that we have been building for some time now. And using that, we are trying to reimagine how rollups can scale blockchains. Gotcha. I appreciate the succinct info. Um, I was surprised to learn that Avail uses Babe and Grandpa for consensus, which originated in the Polkadot SDK. Could you walk through some of like the thought considerations that went into that? Yeah, absolutely. I think you are one of the first ones to straight dive into Babe and Grandpa because uh, uh, it's one of the one of the core design choices that over which we build. And it's uh, the the main thought process which went behind uh, choosing Babe and Grandpa is because we definitely wanted a hybrid ledger. And what that means is that any there's a typical dilemma in consensus systems where you cannot have liveness and safety both together at the same time. And so many systems, they tend to prefer safety over liveness. For example, if you use Tendermint and instant finality chains, which work on top of Tendermint, they choose safety over liveness. So every block needs to be finalized before the next block can be produced. What that means is during periods of network partition or if there is a large amount of nodes which go down, the chain might suffer. And that's why you will see on the other hand, other systems like the POW chains like Bitcoin and Ethereum before the merge, they used to you know, typically favor liveness over finality. So it was all a probabilistic finality. The chain used to survive everything. You can reduce the hash rate. You can increase the number of nodes. It survives everything, right? So 
we were thinking about how exactly to go through this dilemma because we come we we started building this from polygon and in polygon there was this the same dilemmas playing out day in day out there was a two layer architecture one with bore and another with heimdall where bore used uh, like used to favor lightness so it was all probabilistic and then heimdall used to give deterministic or probable finality and we wanted such a hybrid ledger but with better security guarantees like that of a vrf with nominator proof of stake and uh, a fragment election algorithm for more decentralization and such and then we really liked how grandpa you know finalizes over multiple blocks at the same time chains rather than uh, individual blocks and those are the things which uh, you know attracted us towards this design and using babe and grandpa as babe as the block production engine and then grandpa as the finality gadget much like ethereum has today with gasper i wanted to follow up there quickly for a da layer like if you had to choose between the two safety and liveness which one do you think is more important that's a really good question like you will have to i will have to essentially talk about both in separate orientations and so it can be a bit long winded but i can give a crisp answer if you want it um if we talk about sovereign uh, roll ups but rather than sovereignty it's about based roll ups where users send transactions directly to the base layer in those base layer constructions liveness will be very important because the users inclusion of transactions comes from the inclusion and the block production engine of the base layer and that is the times when liveness becomes extremely important so you need to give at least a soft guarantee on the ordering of the transactions otherwise the roll ups on top cannot survive on these orientations liveness becomes important but other than that safety is extremely important because finalization is over which the roll ups who batch together through a sequencer will will thrive on right so for example if you see uh, a op stack or an arbitrum uh, orbit chain or or a polygon zk vm starkware madara zk sync hyperchain all of these have a sequencer at least one or many sequencers on top which determine the ordering so you do not need ordering guarantees from the dnr and hence the dnr only is reliant is relied upon for the finality guarantees and that's where finality becomes important so you somehow need a best of both and even with those kind of systems there is there is hybrid constructions for example in arbitrum there is an inbox smart contract on ethereum which can act as you know the source of force transactions and in other constructions as well they might want to choose the base layer or the dna for force inclusion or force transaction acceptance and that's where liveness again becomes important so censorship resistance comes from the base layer and their liveness is important finality comes from the safety guarantees of the base layer which can be abstracted upon by the rollups and again sorry again for the long winded answer no i think that was a 
as succinct as one could answer the safety versus liveness question, I think another interesting design decision that Avail has opted for is nominated proof of stake, which you don't normally see that much compared to just normal proof of stake blockchains or sort of proof of stake blockchains of native delegation. So could you talk about the benefits of a nominated proof of stake model and some of the trade-offs potentially that come with it? Yeah, absolutely. So there are many ways to look at it, but the main thing here is staking distribution and centralization vectors. So for example, if you think about a typical proof of stake, which is a delegated proof of stake mechanism, there as a delegator, what you go ahead and you choose a validator against like for whom you delegate your stake to. Now, while choosing the like this, while choosing the validator for whom you delegate, you will have to think about your return on investment. Right? That's the most incentive compatible way of choosing whom you stick for. And then, for that, you will always choose the highest amount of stake because they tend to gain the most number of slots and in turn the most number of rewards. And hence, you will see in major delegated proof-of-stake mechanisms, there is a centralization risk. The top 10, even top 3, sometimes control the chain in the sense that there was a recent Cosmos-based chain where a single validator held more than 30% of the stake and that stopped and hence their mainnet completely halted. And this is not to say that it's a problem with with the design or it's not a problem with the chain itself or the functioning of the chain. It's about incentives, right? And that's where nominated proof of stake comes in and says that we will use an election algorithm called fragment election, which has a property called justified representation of stake. What it does is that no matter how much value you come with, you will always be chosen in a manner which maximizes the decentralization of the network. Of course, I'm simplifying it a bit. There are two or three parameters over which it optimizes. It's a NP-complete uh, algorithm. That's why there's some approximation and some bounds on that approximation over which it works. But roughly speaking, what it allows us is for every nominator to come in and give a prioritized list of validators over which they want to distribute their stake to. And over that, it can support a large number of validators, a large number of nominators. It can even support nomination pools and so on. So there are many different you know, concepts which come together to make sure that the chain not only has a large enough validator set, that's down to the consensus system, the grandpa, finality gadget that we discussed before, but also that a large set of people can come in and nominate in a fair and decentralized manner so that the decentralization of the system, the objective functions like the Nakamoto coefficient and such remain at the optimal levels throughout the design. Awesome. That's super helpful. Thank you, Prabal. I appreciate that. Um, in terms of uh, how Avail differs from other DA solutions, so you've got EigenDA, which is just not its own blockchain. It's a committee-based, you know, honest majority assumption. And then on the Celestia side, which is maybe more akin to a veil, 
they're using fraud proofs as you guys are using KZG commitments slash, you know, validity proofs. Can you explain why you made that design choice and maybe the trade-offs and benefits that come with it? Yeah, absolutely. So again, I will go down to history because that will kind of, that had dictated our design decisions for, for a long time. So from, from very early on, Polygon had heavily betted on ZK rollups and validity proofs. And when we were starting to design Avail from within Polygon, which we spun off last year. So when we are designing it, we didn't want to rely on fraud proofs because what that, what that lets you do is that if you want to ascertain the state of a rollup, you need two sorts of guarantees. One, is a guarantee of the correctness of execution and the second is the guarantee of data availability. These two things together guarantee the correctness of the rollup. Now, if you think about such a construction where you have a ZK rollup on a fraud proof based base layer, then for the correctness of execution bit, you have a validity proof or a ZK proof, right? But for the guarantee of data availability you are still relying on fraud proof and hence there will be a challenge period for which you have to wait and so on which makes no sense for creating a zk rollup on top where you have already taken the design decision to avoid fraud proofs to avoid challenge periods to go for composability and so on so that is from where we started and that's where we chose KZG vulnerable commitments and erasure coding along with that to make sure that we can avoid fraud proofs. So that's the fraud proof aspect. The second is that we thought about data availability committees, but then we realized that, you know, a committee can never give the security of a base layer, which can be as decentralized as we can be. And again, this boils back to the decentralization topic and the nominated proof of stake that I was discussing before. If you if you can make a decentralized base layer which acts as a source of security of the rollup, then you would want it to be as sovereign as possible and as crypto economically guaranteed as possible, right? Without having biasness towards one ecosystem or the other. So one of the main reasons why we spun out of Polygon was also that we didn't want to be, you know, biased towards any one of the rollup ecosystems. We wanted to be, you know, credibly neutral. We wanted to be completely independent. And that is one of the reasons why we spun off. And those same design principles and design choices also show up when we talk about why we are building a base layer rather than going for a committee. And then there are other terms there as well. For example, on a on a blockchain of your own, not only there is cryptographic guarantees which we give through erasure coding and uh, validity proofs through KZG government commitments, but there is crypto economic guarantees which is what does it take for you to corrupt two by three of the chain. But then there are also social guarantees, which means that even if the two by three plus of the chain chooses to get corrupted, still there is a social layer which prevents the chain from going completely kaput. So that is one of the reasons also why it is important that a 
a base layer remains independent, remains credibly neutral, and remains decentralized. And that's why we are aiming for. And then this is more of a quick hitter, but I noticed that your block times are 20 seconds versus Celestia's 15. Is that just because of proof generation times or why was the choice for 20 seconds made? That is not nothing to do with the proof generation times. And just for like reference, we have public benchmarks, but uh, I think last I remember it took around less than six seconds to generate even 128 MB uh, blocks and we are only doing you know 2 MB block sizes right now there are two parts to the story the one part is why do we need or what is the relevance of the block time on the DLF? As and this binds back to the questions that you guys were asking before is that what is this is liveness important or safety is important? And the block time comes with the liveness guarantees. So you would want the base rule-up constructs to, to get those soft confirmations very early. And that's why a lower block time might be a bit important. But if you see, there are these, you know, you can always batch them up. There are shared sequencers, there are in general sequencers, and then there are you know, layers of on top, which are bundlers and such, which always operate to give you those soft guarantees even before block times can appear. And that's why it was not relevant for us to have, you know, super low block times, like two seconds, five seconds or something. And I think the same things apply for every other DNA. Like they are not talking, thinking about the shortening of the block times very aggressively because it gives them nothing extra. The other part of the story, why we took 20 seconds itself and not something like 18 seconds or, you know, 10 seconds, is the fact that we want a peer-to-peer overlay network of light clients having all the cells available without reliance on the RPCs. Now, this boils back to the, you know, the decentralization aspect of it where we want our light clients to be to be as compatible and as capable so as to have the data availability guarantees not only verified by themselves but also being able to contribute to the data availability by themselves so what they do is they not only sample this is the power of data availability sampling which i can come on later but they not only sample the data but they also keep the samples available on this overlay peer-to-peer network now, during our stress testing, we we thought that under a sufficient amount of block size, the current peer-to-peer status quo is not, you know, mature enough to populate that DHT within, let's say, 10 to 12 seconds of time when there are, you know, uh, some hundred, like 200,000 cells that we have to populate. That's a lot of entries for the DHT. And during our stress testing, we realized that if we hammer that too hard, the lit peer-to-peer and so on, because they are alpha and beta level software for now, we will not be able to give very high guarantees unless we bring in additional resources to the pit. Like, for example, we can have 
not only our validators and like clients, but also some other clients inside the peer-to-peer -peer network who can populate the DHT. He can have specialized roles which optimize it and so on. But in order to avoid any reliance on beefed up resources or to avoid any reliance on centralized entities, we thought that it would be best to not only give those guarantees from the peer-to-peer -peer layer itself, but to have a very liberal block time so that we can, you know, populate that DHT without much stress. Gotcha. I appreciate the end of explanation there. I wanted to move on to sort of trust and security for a DA layer, right? Um, I think that's probably one area that not as many average retail users understand. So what type of trust or security assumptions are inherent to avail and perhaps uh, we can talk about it specific, specifically in the context of a data withholding attack. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, yeah, data withholding attack is a very misunderstood or seldom well understood kind of a problem, right? So the attack comes to the front where when there is a block producer or a publisher, let me call about, talk of them as publishers. When a publisher tries to withhold either the entirety or parts of the data. In those kind of scenarios, the rollups which are building on top of this data, they tend to be insecure. Again, insecurity or the security has to be defined. So for ZK rollups, it can mean like this because your you know, accounts can be frozen. And on optimistic, it can mean security because you cannot be able to generate fraud groups and such. But there are plenty of problems which appear when data gets withheld. And in terms of what DA layers typically do, and this goes beyond just Oven, right? DA layers in general, what they are meant to do is to make it very, very hard to withhold data and make it very, very easy to catch hold of withholding of data. Now, let me try to talk about both of them separately. What does it mean to make data hiding difficult? What we do is we provide redundancy in the data. For example, if you have compact disks, I guess we, we all here have had the luck of, you know, taking out compact disks and such. So if you take out a, a CD and you had scratches on top, you would still be able to play the audio or the video that was there. And this was due to the fact that there was redundancy inside the encoding, which made it uh, made it okay for it to lose a few bytes here and there. The same principle we used in a reverse manner, where we use the erasure coding to make it hard for people to withhold parts of the data. So to now to withhold even a small fraction, you have to now withhold a large fraction of the data because there was redundancy. So this is how you make it hard for people to withhold. And then the second is how to catch hold that someone withheld data. In typical blockchains, the, all the full nodes download the entirety of the data and then only when they have the full data, they agree that this is a complete block. The light clients, they have no guarantees as such because they are not downloading the entire block. And that's where they get left out and they have incomplete guarantees. So you cannot take a blockchain which is not purpose-built for DA 
and you can assume that it has the same guarantees because because to get the same guarantees you have to host full nodes what we want to we wanted to do is to give the same guarantees but to light clients and what we do is there we use data availability sampling so what that means is the light clients they do not download the entire thing but they download partial samples and by using those partial samples they try to get a high enough confidence that the entire data is available because there is redundancy so that's the two parts of the story about data withholding attacks now coming to you know the trust assumptions and such with light clients with validity proofs we have reduced the trust assumption from let's say an honest minority where which you need for fraud proofs and for a honest neighbor assumption which you need in peer to peer networks where fraud proofs dissipate right so for example when you have a fraud proof you need someone honest who will generate that fraud proof and then you need a honest peer to propagate that fraud proof on the other hand because we use validity proofs we have we have been able to cut out the fact that we need someone honest to generate the proofs because everyone is able to download the proofs and verify that the only other thing which we cannot remove is the fact that one single light client is never enough you need to have a good number of light clients because the probabilistic guarantees that the light clients have the sampling guarantees that the light clients have comes from the fact that there are many people like that who are doing the same amount of sampling right so there needs to be a critical mass of light clients which needs to do the same amount of sampling for individual light clients to have the same guarantee because it's very easy for an individual light client to be fooled again if it is a very long answer i can repeat bits and parts of it no that was super helpful context i appreciate it um from a higher level like i've been seeing a lot of people say that da layers are going to be commoditized would you agree or disagree with that statement i think i completely agree with that statement like the the way that things have been moving today um it is very evident that you know the da costs are not only getting subsidized but to the point that it is right now a race to the zero and you will see absurd numbers being floated around by different new entrants about how much cheap it is and how it's almost negligible and close to zero to be able to and and it's very clear that they are that is not a sustainable model right for a dla to have and hence it we will very quickly see that the dnas will be commoditized and that is exactly why we think that it's not about the data availability cost which will actually drive adoption it's actually the guarantees that data availability gives you now why should someone use avail rather than using their local storage why should someone use avail rather than finding five different vendors getting into a contractual agreement with them and using them for da right those kind of questions need to be answered for for people to realize the the power of da and that's where you know the guarantees that da layers can give to rollups on top in order to interact with each other in order to interact with other ecosystems those are the things that will come to the fore 
and those are the things that will you know differentiate between the different dealers yeah i think we're all definitely in agreement with that and i think the next natural question to ask is what do you think comes next for da layers right do you think they eventually vertically integrate to some other part of the stack because the value of crew, as you mentioned, right, has been relatively minimal and will probably decrease even more going forward. Right now, DA layers today just do DA, right? Um, but with the data posting costs being like either subsidized or so cheap, these DA layers don't make enough money, um, to be frank. And chances are they're going to have to vertically integrate for example, facilitate interoperability somehow or launch some other like part of the modular blockchain stack or like a roll-up as a service, uh, whatever you want to think of. So where do you think these DA layers like eventually expand to to hopefully increase their value accrual or their profitability? No, I think the, the, the real moat here is the ecosystem, right? You need to build an ecosystem on top in order to in order to be able to you know drive traction in order to be able to be drive activity and that's where your real you know adoption will come in in the matter of whether they will do some vertical integration with other parts of the stack maybe they will right maybe there some of them will actually go ahead and make something which is very specialized but the fact is that there will always be two ways in which DA layers can be used. One, which is very unopinionated, which is extremely, uh, you know, simple that you push and publish a blob of data and that blob of data will be kept available. That is the basic service that every DA layer will have to provide. And there will be almost no DA layer which will say that, no, you cannot be this simple. You have to also, it's part of a package and you'll have to take X, Y, Z out of it. Of course, there will be add-ons on top. There will be, you know, favorites, tier favorites in ecosystems. And this has already shown up, right? For example, if you if you are thinking of doing a swap in Ethereum ecosystem, you will find that, you know, Uniswap is the is where most of the liquidity for most of the asset classes are there, right? So that is a natural choice. And this is not like, you know, Ethereum has, you know, somehow said that Uniswap will be the only only place where swaps can happen. But this is general because Uniswap has been able to gain that traction, has been able to get all that liquidity, has been able to cater, cater to all that users and so on. Right? So that's, you know, some of the natural uh, design choices and the parts of the stack which will you know bubble up in due course of time, and we will keep on seeing that. Whether DLRs will endorse some of that or not, I mean it's hard to say. Maybe maybe that those are the differentiators that will come up as well. Like for example, I can only talk about a win and. There, we are deeply thinking about interoperability. We are deeply thinking about like making this fragmented world of, you know, thousands of rollups um, a more coherent, more composable world, right? Because we are convinced that there will be tens and thousands of rollups. And if in that world, we don't want to have the same user experience 
as a normal user today has across, let's say, Startnet, uh, Polygon ZK EVM, uh, ZK Sync ERA, Arbitron One, and some of the base layer, uh, base chain, right? So we we don't want the similar fragmentation that we are seeing today to also happen to all the rollups which uh, you know uh, like stay on on top of a build. And that's why we are deeply thinking about it. Of course, it will, no matter what we come up with, it will it will always be a choice for the rollups to either participate because sovereignty is something which is very close to our heart. And I'm I'm very sure that none none of the rollups uh, will like will want to give up their sovereignty, um, and that's why it will be their choice at the end. That's one of the main reasons why you would want to have a rollup of your own, to be honest. Yeah, that 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 point you just brought up really rings home to me because I've always thought of DA layers as kind of like the value is in the ecosystem and the ecosystem is only as good as the interoperability between all of the different chains utilizing the solution. So I saw that Avail is working with uh, Succinct Labs to build a two-way bidirectional bridge between Ethereum and Avail. And Celestia seems to be trying to do something similar and they're also leaning into IBC a little bit. So I guess the question here is, how is that going and why maybe did you choose Ethereum? I assume because that's where, you know, most of the assets and liquidity are as like kind of your starting point. But yeah, if you could just expand on that, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. I think the choice of Ethereum was, you know, I mean, a no-brainer, right? I mean, if you want to be able to use a settlement layer, you will want to use Ethereum. Like full stop, right? That there cannot be any other debate about a more potent and a more valuable settlement layer that you can have for any rollup today. And rollups are rollups would want to settle on Ethereum because of the network effects that it has, right? Because of the amount of liquidity, the amount of faction, users, everything that it has. It's a no-brainer for a rollup developer to be to to settle to Ethereum. And hence uh, we wanted to, you know, have a bidirectional bridge to Ethereum as a beginning. When we were developing, we, we thought that what can be the best way to build a bridge? And mind you that bridges are almost always the the the, the weakest link of these ecosystems, right? We have seen that time and again. And hence, uh, we wanted to have the strongest amount of guarantees that it can be, be it can be having across two different blockchains. And that's why we thought of having a light client-based verification on one chain in another. And if you want to do it natively, it will cost you a lot. For example, if you wanted to bridge Avail to Ethereum and Avail has ED25519 signatures of 1,000 validators, the verification itself cannot fit into a single block of Ethereum, right? So... It was almost impossible to do it that way. And hence, the, the next best thing that you can have is a ZK proof that the validators did sign it correctly. And that's what we are trying to do with VectorX, which is uh, the bridge that we are developing from Avail to Ethereum along with Sussing Labs. And Sussing Labs already had telepathy, which was being used to bridge Ethereum to other chains. And hence, we use telepathy for the direction of Ethereum to avail. So 
That's why if you wanted to have this bidirectional bridge with Ethereum, there will be other bridges. Of course, as you know that it's not going to stop with one one connection, right? We don't want to have, you know, 100 different connections with 100 different chains. That's not the business that we are in. But at the same time, because if you now have a plugin to Ethereum, you can almost do a hop to any other ecosystem. So if we can abstract it well enough, we'll be able to, you know, take information from any other chain in any other ecosystem to Avin and vice versa. And so that was the starting point where from where we started. What's up, everyone? March is approaching fast, and I want to give you another reminder not to miss out on DAS London. It is coming. It's right around the corner, and it's in March from the 18th to the 20th. We have three full days of content. This is your chance to bump shoulders with some of the world's top executives and have open dialogue with both attendees and speakers. We're going to be focusing on a range of topics that I'll let Ren discuss for you. First on the list, we have Bitcoin Catalyst, the halving and spot ETF. Next, we have a view from the buy side from investors on things like strategy, portfolio allocation, and more. We also have a topic on RWA's tokenization and stable points, which I think we can all agree are going to play a large role in crypto's future. We'll also talk about global regulatory frameworks like compliance best practices and the evolution of global standards that are shaping the global investment landscape. We'll also have someone from the institutional front to talk about infrastructure such as banking and payments with financial giants like Visa and JP Morgan. And last on the list, the macro case for digital assets. So don't miss out on this monumental event seats are limited so be sure to register today by hitting the link in the description and using the promo code 0x10 to save 10% on tickets see you in london i wanted to ask a question about the block building process for da layers i don't think a lot is understood into like how it actually works so i guess two questions there the first is like what does a block building process look like for a da layer or specifically for a veil and the second question is do you think the block building process will ultimately become centralized in some sense? Because, you know, on Ethereum, the the block building is like relatively centralized between five builders or are those dynamics just not at play for a DA layer? I would answer the second question first. So it is not a choice for the DA layer to become centralized in block building. Because if you think about it, all the MEV of cross roll-up interactions will remain with the block builder. All the censorship resistance that you can give for any of the roll-ups on top will rely on the block builders. So if your block builder is actually centralized, then you are you are not giving any value prop that DLAs should give. So DLAs should not only give you know, guarantees of DA, that's of course there, but it should also give guarantees on ordering. And for giving guarantees on ordering, the force inclusion, the censorship resistance, those kind of things become very, very important. That's one part. And then let's come to the, to the fact that why I think that it will not be centralized, right? So what is the block building process? So today, the block building process is actually more complicated than it needs to be. That is because we were building on top of, you know, Substrate or Polkadot SDK as it known as today. And in in that, you cannot, we have changed it quite a lot to make sure our block building can be implemented, but then you cannot rip it apart, right? 
So we still have to play by the rules of substrate, which is that of re-execution. So what it happens today is a block builder comes in, it takes in the data blobs that were submitted from the transaction pool, it creates a commitment on top of the data blobs, and it produces a header, it propagates that header and the block itself. Other validators who, who have to sign on top, they have to take the same data blobs, recompute re the commitment, and then check equality. Now, this is suboptimal because in an ideal world, you would not need to recompute commitments, but you should be able to sample them as well. Because once you are committed to a data, even the other validator should be able to sample it but we were not able to implement it at this particular phase, but that's part of our future roadmap. Those are the kind of improvements that we want to do so that the block production engine becomes extremely thin so that anyone can become a block producer because today, KZG polynomial commitment generation is extremely cheap and extremely efficient. It can, it will take maybe, you know, 900 milliseconds to generate around 4 MB worth of commitments. Uh, in special orientations, that is. So, uh, that's why we have to, that's why I think that the block production will not get centralized and it doesn't, it has to be ensured that they are not centralized because that's one of the value propositions that any DLA will give. Okay, that makes sense. And we had Brandon Farmer on from Polygon the other day, actually. And uh, I found his thesis of, you need to be able to scale liquidity in a singular environment, like as kind of compelling, because there is like a lot of liquidity fragmentation amongst rollups. So obviously you mentioned or alluded to Dimensions launch earlier in the conversation, and they're aiming to have kind of like a settlement layer with an enshrined AMM to like kind of unify liquidity. How do you think this dynamic looks in a world of a thousand rollups that you clearly have a lot of conviction on? Like where is it? fragmented liquidity on every roll-up? Is there going to be a settlement layer where most of the liquidity lives and maybe that's Ethereum and that's why you're building the bridge? But just more thoughts on your thesis around how that plays out would be great. So one of the main shift in thought process, I will, I will answer to that specific query of yours. But before even going there, I want to clearly state that liquidity might be a flawed metric in this roll-up centric world. The fact is that I feel there will be more application-specific rollups. I'm not here to say that all these thousand rollups will all be AVM, all be general purpose, all have smart contract support. That's not how it's going to scale because by power law, there will only be a handful which will remain, which will have all the tractions and all the others will die out. So the all the in the application-specific rollup world is where we see thousands of rollups. And in that world, liquidity is not that important. For example, if you think of Web2 world, and of course, we, we want to create a better than Web2 uh, world, and that's why we are here. But there are definite you know, learnings that we can get from the Web2 world. If you think of how Web2 is able to scale all this, is what they do is they have made microservices. Right? So they have made specialized thin services and middlewares which take a lot of like api calls from one another in order to make a seamless experience on top 
So when you buy a product on, let's say, Amazon, it gets gives a call, like when you do a payment, it maybe gives a call to Stripe. Stripe doesn't have all the information of your credit card, right? So it gives a call to, let's say, Visa. And Visa doesn't know your bank balance, right? So it gives a it gives an API call to your bank. And at the, only at that point, the bank has your account details or may or may not have your account details. And that's where it either optimistically or checks it and pessimistically deducts the balance and then returns that promise or resolves that promise to Visa. Visa resolves that promise to Stripe. Stripe resolves that promise to Amazon. And Amazon is like, yes, I trust Stripe. I don't need to know what your bank is. I don't need to know what your payment aggregator is. I just uh, rely on Stripe and that API call. And I will go ahead and give you the, the thing that you wanted. In the Web3 analogy, we want to create a world where all of this happens, but in a trust minimized manner. So you don't need to rely or trust on Stripe. You don't need to rely or trust on Visa or similar uh, analogous services. That will be trust minimized, but individually they will be specialized. Because if you want, if you think of a general purpose chain, its state is generic, its transaction structure is generic, its scalability has limits, it's, it has a lot of state bloat, it has a lot of, you know, structural, um, you know, nuances which were taken because it has to be generic. Whereas if you think of the app-specific world, you can have very, very custom execution environments. And those are the places where we will see a lot of new novelty of constructions coming up. So, I mean, again, Web2 has seen similar trends already. When a new, if you want to launch your new website, you will not create a new framework of your own, right? You will use something off the shelf. You will create a, you will create a website. And as you get more and more users, you would want to, you would kind of think that, okay, this is suboptimal. What can I do to make it custom built for my application? And that is how all the major frameworks today have been built. All the major protocols of the web to have been built, right? Some person realized that this might be ideal for my use case, then open sourced it. Other people built on top of it. And that's how it became a standard. Right? Not sure if that answers fully, but I can come to Brendan's comment in a bit. It does not. And I, I really like the trust minimize microservices analogy, right? Um, in the Web2 world, it's pretty fragmented. There's probably a, a decent amount of like value extraction and definitely not trust minimize because you're depending on someone to maintain that API, ensure it has quote-unquote liveness and also has quote-unquote like the correct execution of the API. So I do think that vision you have for like a world of like a thousand rollups makes a lot of sense. I think the next question I wanted to ask is perhaps slightly more from the BD perspective, right? I think Celestia has managed to successfully craft its own narrative and one could say that it has executed a pretty good go-to-market strategy. What are Avail's plans for go-to-market strategy and capturing DA layer mindshare, especially noting that I think we're still in the relatively early days of DA layers taking off? Yeah, no, that's a that's a very good question. Like, first of all, I want to say like all credit to Celestia because we have to explain the problem of DA a lot less than we had to do back in 2020, even within the org and so on, right? So there was a lot of 
you know, lot of mental boundaries that Sanestia guys pushed and all credit to them for able to create a niche for themselves and to be able to, you know, help us making sure that we don't have to explain it in too depth. The second part of that is, of course, they have done a brilliant job in the narrative and such. But at the same time, the market is still very nascent. So if you think of one production grade roll-up, which has the guarantees of the base layer using Celestia, it will be hard to find. Again, I don't know exactly. Maybe that is there. Maybe one or two are there. I don't know of them. But all the big ones which I hear of either do not use the bridge or they do not have short proofs or they do not have the DA guarantees all set inside the protocols. The settlement layer doesn't even know or they are being subsidized. So again, I don't exactly know whether we have seen even the genesis of this entire explosion that we are going to see. All the production grade rollups which inherit the security of the base layer are right now on Ethereum. So that's why we will there is a lot of scope for for us to come in and show what we are capable of. Again, on the other hand, if we compare the mindshare that they have been able to take versus us, it's again Apple's to oranges, right? Because they are the only production DA layer that is out there. Of course, we will soon change that. But credit where it's due, they are the only ones. And that's why they are the only option if you want to build a production roll-up, right? So as we go in production, we will have our launch partners. We will see all the, all the announcements that we do in the coming days. So... So that it becomes extremely clear that there are many more uh, rollups that are going to get built. There are many more production grade uh, systems that are going to use Avail. And Avail is not just a DLA, that's just the start of our journey. A little bit more of a thematic question here for you. What excites you the most uh, in terms of like what could be built on an old DA solution like Avail? Um, could it be like a Web3 native app, maybe like some DEX or a D5 primitive that we haven't seen? Or are you like more excited about a real company in, in the world, maybe integrating blockchain rails through something along the lines of Avail? I know that's a little bit of a left fielder, but curious to get your take on where the real adoption occurs. I think, again, I I want to be here neutral and say like a both because who are we to pick and choose? As I said, we want to be neutral and that's not just by, you know, by not leaning into one or the other, but because we don't have a choice. When someone submits a data blob, we see it as a, as, as a binary blob of data. We don't have a choice to know whether it's coming from DeFi, whether it's coming from institutional, whether it's coming from a competitor, I don't know, right? So that's why there is no choice for us other than to be very neutral. That's to be honest. But where I see actually the the new things happening is when institutional ones come up and use blockchain rails, but in a new way. So all the existing, like it, it, it doesn't matter what exactly gets built. What matters is, what are we doing to make sure that the cost of experimentation is low? 
because if we do not make the cost of experimentation low enough then new things will not get built new developers will not come into the space and if new things and new developers don't come then we will keep on you know grinding the same cycles over and over again the same uh, applications in new wrappers with newer incentives incentives will dry down users will flop out and those are the things that we will keep getting stuck at so we definitely want newer use cases to come in and for newer use cases i don't know the answer first because i don't care that's true but the second is also because we are hellbent on making sure that the cost of experimentation is low enough so that new use cases can be built whether that comes from institutional whether that comes from you know existing designs i don't know i wanted to follow up there i have a super random question that might not make any sense but i'm just going to shoot it out for example um you mentioned how institutions will build maybe some like innovative solution right but say tornado cash right where to build a roll up and this tornado cash roll up decides to post its da to avail so let's say whatever da layer is there a way and assuming like the sec says okay this da layer is now like complicit in like uh supporting like OFAC transactions is there a way for a da layer to like censor a roll up from posting data to like its da layer or it's not possible at all there are two ways to think of it the two layers at which this interaction will happen the first layer is how is the transactions getting batched if there is a sequencer one or more sequencers they are the ones who decide which transactions come in and which transactions don't so they will be first of all hopefully liable for for transaction inclusion right so that's where the filtering should happen but at the same time as i was mentioning before there can be you know forced transaction inclusions and such and those are the guarantees you might want to give in such crucial applications and in this regard the only way to you know prohibit someone from doing a forced transaction is if validators choose to censor particular origin of the transactions so when you submit a transaction you submit it from an account address because someone need to pay the fees and when that happens the validator might choose to not include specific accounts because they are known to be whatever non compliance that that they will argue upon right so that individual validators can do and that kind of thing already happens in the most censorship resistant uh you know chains that you see today bitcoin we have seen what governments can do when they curb you know mining activities on ethereum we see that a large chunk of blocks are ofac compliant and you cannot avoid that i mean you cannot just make every validator comply to non ofac right because at the end of the day validators own the network they own the slot uh, for which they are being chosen and in that they can do whatever they want So I've got a question on light clients bringing it back to the more technical side of things. Do you guys actually know like a quantifiable exact number of light clients that are sampling actively because that's directly related to the I guess the block size and how large you can scale I would assume based on what you described. So I feel like being able to quantify that would be important. 
So right now, what we do is we do have a basic telemetry kind of setup in which we have seen up to 5,000 light clients operating. Um, this is to just to say that we have also seen like 2.5, like 2,500 full nodes also operating. We have been operating, you know, 310 validators for our instant device testnet and so on. So the numbers are, are of course, large. Uh, even without the light clients in the full node territory, in the validator territory, there has been huge amount of interest. So we have been, you know, lucky enough to be able to see those numbers. But for now, we have seen around 5,000. We are launching our light client incentivized challenge pretty soon. Maybe in the next one or two weeks. Maybe by the time you guys publish. So uh, in that, we will actually ask people to spin up light clients. And during that, we will do the stress testing. That is when we will be able to know that you know the total amount of light clients that we can support our peer-to-peer -peer network can support you will be doing a lot of stress testing there internally and with the you know peers that we have and the partners that we have we have seen around five thousand today i think light clients because one of the questions that we've sort of like struggled with especially on the celestial side of things is like no one has a straightforward answer when we ask them if like how do you know how many like clients your network has? And because the scalability of the network is like kind of tied to that. So I appreciate the clarity there. I think the last question I wanted to ask is just what's your data availability hot take? You know, what's like the spiciest opinion that you have that the general crypto crowd may disagree with? Yeah, I think uh, one of the things which we tend to do and by we, I also want to tell about myself is that the DLAs they somehow we try to position ourselves as both a savior for high cost in validium constructions and having high guarantees of DA both punched together. The fact is that in validium constructions the cryptographic guarantee that comes with data sampling goes away unless there are specific constructs in which you operate in. So in a normal sense, there is no guarantee which data sampling gives in a validium unless your users are running the DNS services. We are trying to do that, but there is no, no chain today which does that. And that's why validiums operate on crypto economic guarantees. And it's important to be able to call a spade a spade in some sense that the in that regard it just acts as just another blockchain which keeps the the, the data right behind the transactions and those are sometimes you know misrepresented the other thing which we tend to do is whenever we cannot guarantee something by the protocol we choose to fall to social consensus we choose to say that you know what, yeah, we cannot ensure this, but the social layer will ensure this. There will be enough people woke enough to realize that this is a problem with the network or the protocol just completely failed. And that's where they will all, you know, roll up their sleeves and start coding into their, uh, or, you know, into their clients 
and go through go to a minority fork because they want to do a social fork and social slashing and so on. In theory, yes, but in practice, it has been seen only a few number of times. I mean, there's only a handful amount of times where there is enough at stake when the social slashing has happened. And then that's why we need to make sure that most of our guarantees come from the protocol itself and all the extra protocol guarantees can be left to the social layer, but we should not rely upon it too much. Not sure if these were hot enough for your liking. No, nah, that's good. I saw that uh, thread that you had actually on Twitter between a couple different people. Um, so yeah, I, I thought that's what you were going to say to that answer. <laughs> uh, but one last question I got to ask is this is a crypto podcast. Um, you mentioned incentivized uh, running of light clients on testnet here in the coming weeks. So is there going to be a token? And if so, what role does that token play in the avail ecosystem? There will be a token. We will come up with the details maybe later because we are still figuring those things out. Um, the role of the token will be very simple, right? So it any network which is completely independent L1, it needs a token to incentivize the validators and to be able to, you know, do dust protect prevention and such, right? So people need to pay some fees and the validators need to be rewarded using some token. So that's majorly the role that it will play in the beginning. Of course, as we, you know, talk about the different things that we will come up after the DA phase, we will talk about the extended role of the token that it will have in the ecosystem. So as to mainly drive the ecosystem towards creating more value. That's the, you know, hypothetical answer, to be honest, at this point, because, uh, in reality, today you can use it or we use it on the testnet to uh, fake incentivize the validators and, you know, drop through faucet so as to do a little bit of spam prevention on the block side. But yeah, we are not very successful at the DOS prevention maybe because we are seeing millions of transactions per week, which is very good for us because we are going through a stress testing and that's very good. Awesome. Well, we will have to bring you back on in uh, six to 12 months and get some more details on on how things have been going. But thank you so much for coming on. Is there any last uh, second thoughts you want to share with the listeners, maybe where to find you or learn more about Avail? Yeah, so just get and get and see availproject.org. Find us on Twitter. Uh, follow us there. I am Prabal Banerjee on Twitter. I, I put my handle here. Um we have a clash of nodes incentivized testnet program where anyone can participate, be a casual user who just want to try out the chain, be a security researcher who want to find a vulnerability. We have bug bounties there and elsewhere. We, we right now are going through our partner challenges. So if you're a roll-up developer, you can today also run Dimension Chains and Madara Chains on, on us. There is a ZKVM uh, for chain that is running on on us like clan challenges are coming so yeah stay tuned and there will be many other challenges which we you know come up with 
Awesome. Thank you so much. We'll catch you later. Hey, everyone. Thanks for watching today's Zero X Research episode. I wanted to take a second and remind you about our upcoming 2024 Digital Asset Summit in London this March. Seats are limited, so hit the link in the description and use the promo code 0x10 to save 10% on tickets. See you in London.